Isaiah 59, verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. That's what I want to teach on tonight and however many weeks it takes us is simply this lifting a standard. Lifting a standard. Let's put our Bibles down. Let's lift our hands, lift our voices. Let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts tonight. You know, church, we, I want a spirit of revelation to move. When I teach these lessons, I don't want it to just be learning that you gain. I, I want a spirit of revelation to come upon this place. Let's pray together right now. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship him one more time before you're seated. Everybody lift a praise to the Lord right now. Come on. Let's magnify his name. Praise God. Praise God. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thankfully, I don't need the chair. Uh, I was feeling a little rough when service started. I, I've been having some issues with my blood sugar. It's been all over the place in the last week, from well over 300 one day to 33 another day. And um, when it's out of whack, it just makes me feel crazy. And... Um, I was feeling rough when service started. I'm feeling okay right now, so we'll, we'll get through this. Uh, <clears throat> in previous lessons, I've discussed at length the need for standards of holiness. I have pointed out to you God's command that we be separate. I've talked about the importance of there being a distinction between the church and the world. And most recently, I have discussed the significance of what standards represent. Now, there is basically one final reason that I want to give before discussing the process of actually setting standards, which is what I want to do tonight. We've talked about why we need standards. We've talked about uh, unity. We've talked about all of the things that come with setting standards. And there is one final thing I want to mention here tonight as to why we need standards. 
That is that standards are an essential form of protection for the child of God. They serve as protection. You know, I, I, uh, I, I love to listen to Western stories. I've got more than one dramatized Louis L'Amour in my repertoire. And uh, somebody said one time that they really felt like God ought to just give a special dispensation to Louis L'Amour. <laughs> He's brought such enjoyment to the people of God. Um, and, and some old-time radio Westerns like Gunsmoke. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy... One of the things that I hear mentioned a lot is that there was a time in the Old West of which we are a part. Um, we are, I mean, Dodge City, Kansas, you don't get much more Old West than, than Dodge City. And we're right here, not far from the banks of the Missouri River, which was a major crossing for cattle drives or people coming uh, to the West. The city of Olathe, in fact, as many of you know, some of you may not, was the crossroads for the old Santa Fe and Oregon trails. They crossed right here in the city of Olathe. In fact, if you've never been to the Mahaffey House, that is the original stage stop where those two trails crossed. And that, that stage stop still stands. That's almost a tongue twister. The stage stop still stands. Um... Yeah, you can tell I'm feeling a little bit better. Uh, but, but, but in listening, there, there is a recurring point that I hear mentioned frequently. That is that if you go far enough back, people just kind of, whatever cattle was, ram, was roaming the hillside, they'd just bring them in and, and um, claim them. And at some point, as more and more settlers came west, they began to see they couldn't just let their cattle roam free. They had to have some way of deciding whose cattle belonged to whom. And they did that by erecting fences. The fences marked off their property line. And it protected, hopefully, their cattle from someone else getting them. Now, the protection was, was, was um, a two-way thing. It, it, it was, it was double-faceted. Uh, it, it kept the enemy out, theoretically. The rustlers did, from time to time, cut the wires and um, but, but theoretically, the idea was to keep the rustlers out, keep the wild animals out. But the second thing was to guard the populace within, to keep them from roaming to places that would be more dangerous for them. And standards do the same thing for us. 
Listen, if you can get a revelation of this, people feel like that, that standards are so confining and so restrictive. But think about them in terms of fences. What are those fences restricting you from? They're restricting you from danger. I've been up on the mountaintops, and I've watched some of these crazy, fearless young people get out on rocks as far as they can go and get as close to the edge as they can. Not me. Not me. If, if there's not a guardrail there, I can promise you I'm standing as far back as I can get. And even if there is a guardrail, I'm not going to be right up on it. That rail is there for a reason. It's there to give you protection. It's there to keep you from going over the edge. And I'm going to tell you, our natural proclivities, our natural inclinations are to go over the edge when it comes to carnality and sin. That's human nature. But if we can erect some fences called standards of holiness, then those fences serve to protect us. As long as we stay within the fence, we're safe. I've watched cattle. They always feel like the grass is greener on the other side. And they'll stick their heads through that barbed wire. And they can have a pasture of 40 acres of good green grass. Now they're going to find that fence and stick their muzzles through it and eat the grass on the other side. That's just the way it is. But unfortunately, that's the way sometimes we can be. Always looking at what we can't have and trying to decide just how far can we go and still be inside the fence. But if we'll understand that fence is there for a reason, that fence is there to protect us. In fact, I wish I'd have thought to bring it with me. Um, and I don't know if I could, I hate to take too much time during the service trying to find it, but but I had an elder uh, some years ago who, who gave me a copy of uh, a poem that, um, that he had read that to me, ah, I got it, thank God for cell phones and Dropbox. Let me read this to you. "'Twas a dangerous cliff. As they freely confessed, though to walk near its crest was so pleasant. But over its terrible edge there had slipped a duke and full many peasant. So the people said something would have to be done. But here, projects did not all tally. Some said put up a fence around the edge of the cliff. Some an ambulance down in the valley. But the cry for the ambulance carried the day, for it spread throughout the neighboring city. A fence may be useful or not, it is true, but each heart became full of pity. For those who slipped over the dangerous cliff and dwellers in a highway and alley, 
gave pounds or gave pence, not to put up a fence, but an ambulance down in the valley. For a cliff is all right if you're careful, they said. And if folks even slip and are dropping, it isn't the slipping that hurts them so much as the shock down below when they're stopping. So day after day, as the mishaps occurred, quick forth would these rescuers sally to pick up the victims who fell off the cliff with their ambulance down in the valley. There an old sage remarked, it's a marvel to me that people give more attention to repairing results than to stopping the cause when they'd much better aim at prevention. Let's stop at its source all this mischief, cried he. Come, neighbors and friends, let us rally. If the cliff we will fence, we might also dispense with the ambulance down in the valley. Oh, he's a fanatic, the others rejoined. Dispense with the ambulance? Never. He'd dispense with all charities, too, if he could. No, no, we'll support them forever. Aren't we picking up folks just as fast as they fall? And shall this man dictate to us? Shall he? Why should people of sense stop to put up a fence while the ambulance works in the valley? But a sensible few who are practical too will not bear with such nonsense much longer. They believe that prevention is better than cure and their party will soon be the stronger. Encourage them then with your purse, voice, and pen and while other philanthropists dally, they will scorn all pretense and put up a stout fence on the cliff that hangs over the valley. Better guide well the young than reclaim them when old, for the voice of true wisdom is calling. To rescue the fallen is good, but tis best to prevent other people from falling. Better close up the source of temptation and crime than deliver from dungeon or galley. Better put a strong fence around the top of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley. Does that make sense? That's the reason for offense. And that's the reason for holiness standards. It's much better to keep you from falling into that sin than to have to try to recover you after you've fallen into it. As Elder Morton used to say all the time and probably still does, you know, people will call me and, and they, they tell me they've just scrambled the eggs of their life and they want me to unscramble them, but you just can't unscramble eggs. And that's what happens to so many people. We don't want fences. We don't want standards. We don't want restrictions. Let's just live. We trust people. We, we, we believe we can make it. We'll be all right. We don't need rules and regulations. And then you got to go and pick them up and pick them up and pick them up and try to help them. Isn't it better to build a strong fence and say, if we'll stay on this side of the fence, we're not going to have a problem. If we'll just stay on this side of the fence, we're not going to run into those issues. I, I understand that a lot of folks see our dating guidelines and policy as being extremely restrictive. But I can tell you this. I've never yet had the first couple who abided by those rules ever fall into fornication. 
If they lived by the rules we set, they never fell into fornication. It's only those that climbed over the fence. Well, and the holiness standards that we set, is, they serve in exactly the same way. They are a fence to protect you. It's not to restrict you. It's not to control you. It's to protect you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. I'm going to tell you, this is what holiness standards aim to accomplish. We want to keep from giving the devil any place. We want to strengthen those areas where, he, where we know he makes his most fierce attacks. Well, praise God. And holiness standards keep us from roaming to dangerous places by establishing guidelines that are a safe distance from harm. Well, praise God. Standards not only protect us. Now, I want you to think about this. They not only protect us, they protect the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with the smoke. Now I want smoke. you to notice they're up here crying, holy, holy, holy. Not love, love, love. Right. Not mercy. And I believe in mercy. I believe in love. Not peace, peace, peace. Right, right. They're crying, holy, holy, holy. And when they start crying, holy, the Bible said that the posts of the door started shaking. There was a movement in heaven. Everything started to quake at the proclamation of God's holiness. Church, don't ever forget this is where the power of God resides. This is where the power of God resides. Those churches that have abandoned holiness have zero power. Zero. They have none. Their services are dead. They're lifeless. They've had to resort to bringing in Hollywood, blacking out their sanctuaries, using strobe lights. They've got no move of God. You know why? Because holiness protects the glory of God. This is what makes the difference. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I've said this in a previous lesson, but I say again that we only have the promise of paternity as long as we maintain a passion for purity. Did you get that? 
We only have the promise of paternity. God only promises to be our father if we'll come out from among them and be separate and not touch what is unclean. That's the only time he promises he'll be our father. We've got to have a passion for purity. We've got to want to remain pure. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love because the world... Because if you love the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Now you please explain to me how we are being legalistic. When the Bible's very clear that if you love the things of the world, you don't even have the love of God in you. This is not about legalism. This is about real love. When you really love God, you want to please him. When you really love God, you want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. This is not legalism. This is love. A love for the world shows an absence of the love of God in your life. That's what John said. Now, this is the same John that the world loves to quote with John 3.16. Same guy. We're going to trust him on John 3.16? Then we ought to trust him on 1 John 2.15. John 3.16 talks about the love of God. 1 John 2.15 talks about the love of God. God so loved that he gave. And if you love the world enough that you want to take from the world, you don't have the love of God. That's what John said under the direct inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He wrote under divine inspiration. This is not his opinion. This is not my opinion. This is what the word of God says. I'm telling you that when you've got a love for the world in your heart, you need more of the love of God than what you possess. And I'll just tell you now, the book of Romans tells us the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So if you're lacking the love of God, you know what you need? You need more Holy Ghost. It's probably been too long since you've had a good praying through. You go to an altar and have a good, solid praying through. And let God fill you up with his spirit again. And you're going to love God and you're going to hate this world. Romans 5, 5, let me prove what I just said. Romans 5 and 5. And hope maketh not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by, by the, Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I'm telling you, when we're lacking the love of God, it's because we don't have enough Holy Ghost. The more full of the Holy Ghost we become, the more we love God. Did you hear what I said? The more full of the Holy Ghost we become, the more we love God. And the more we love God, the less we love the things of this world. The less we love the things of this world, the more we recognize God as our Father. The more we recognize His position over us, the more we proclaim His holiness. And the more we proclaim his holiness, the more we have a move of his spirit. 
I, I need to get this in writing because you need to be able to read this paragraph over and over and over and over again. <laughs> Let me read it to you again. The more full of the Holy Ghost we become, the more we love God. The more we love God, the less we love the things of the world. The less we love the things of the world, the more we recognize God's paternity in our lives. The more we recognize his position over us, the more we proclaim his holiness. The more we proclaim his holiness, the more we have a move of God. So listen, we maintain standards not just to keep the devil out, but to keep God in. All right, so I've used half my time finishing up, which really wasn't a part of last week's lesson. It's just an addendum to what we were discussing. So now, maybe I need to move it to, to the chapter before uh, and kind of close out the chapter with that. But let's, let's, let's move on because we want to talk tonight about lifting a standard. We want to talk about where, where do we get these standards from? Are they just arbitrary ideas uh, that, that um, you know, can change with the passing of time? Where, where exactly do we get these standards of holiness? Well, I can tell you this, that, that if we just set them arbitrarily, it, it does nothing but bring confusion and division within the body. And don't ever forget 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not the author God of confusion. God is not the author of confusion. But of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And so, again, if all we're doing is we're, just, we're determining a standard today based on how we feel, based on what we like and dislike. And, and church, look, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. But, but I think my track record speaks for itself. I've known of a lot of men that have been quick to jump on bandwagons to preach against anything and everything. And I've tried my best to not do that in this church. I've tried my best to be balanced, to be slow about taking a stand against anything. I know men, I know well-meaning men that used to preach desperately against the Internet. I mean, they were against it. No internet, period. You can't use it. And I was considered a liberal for allowing it. And now I know of at least one of those men who has a Facebook page. Now, I don't know how he got that without internet. So, so look, I, I'm, I, I'm not one of those that just jumps on every bandwagon. To me, that brings confusion. To me, that causes confusion. And one of the things I've always said is if I get up and, and make a proclamation that something is a sin, and then somewhere down the road I come along and say, well, it's not a sin, then that's going to cause well-meaning saints to start questioning everything I've ever preached against. I believe it's much safer to use caution. And at some point, if I see it's wrong, then I'm going to say it's wrong, and it's going to be wrong until the day I die. We're going to settle it right then and there, and we're going to stand with that position. 
because I, God's not the author of confusion. I, I knew of one man who preached against the internet that would call his friends and have them book his airline tickets. Look, if it's a sin, why are you asking your friend to sin for you? I, I've got a pastor friend that was telling me he was riding in a car with a man who preached against watches. And he had a watch on. And he said, the man asked him what time it was. He said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not trying to make fun of people's convictions. I, I'm just telling you, church, that, that it's just not right in my mind to just get up and set random standards based on what's popular at the latest camp meeting. I go off to meetings all the time and hear people preach against things I don't preach against, and no doubt you do too. And from time to time, they come here and preach against things I don't preach against. And, and let me just tell you, the proper response is always, I know who my pastor is. Now, I'm open. If, if God wants to speak and tell me that something we're doing, we need to stop doing, I'm open to that. I am open to that. And I can promise you, when that happens here, I'm going to spend some time praying and asking God, now, Lord, it, do, I need, do I need to make this stand? But if I don't feel led of the Holy Ghost to go along with it, you're just not going to hear me say anything. I'm not going to contradict the man, and I don't want you to disrespect the man. I want him to have the liberty to preach what he feels he needs to preach. And maybe for some people, what he's preaching against, they need to, to stop. I heard one man say one time, he said, I preach against tele television, but I've got a couple of saints in my church that I would gladly go buy them the biggest TV set I could afford if they'd get rid of their telephone. Uh, I, I, I don't know how I got off on that. But anyhow, I, I, want, I want to... I want you to understand there are some people that these things that get preached against, if, if I don't preach against it for the church, just know who your pastor is. And I'll get into all that, and I'll get into where my role comes into the setting of standards because it's not entirely left up to me. There are some areas that I do feel like are left up to pastoral discretion, and that's why you have differences from one church to the next. And I'll explain all of that from the light of Scripture. But, but just understand that sometimes when somebody gets up and they feel to preach on something that I don't preach against, maybe there's somebody sitting here that really does need to give that up. Maybe they're abusing it. Maybe they've got other problems. And that just becomes a stepping stone to lead them into areas they should never go to. Some people don't need the Internet. Because they can't handle it. Right. 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 
But where, where do these standards come from? Well, I want to give you six ways that God sets holiness standards. Six ways, all right? We're going to try to go through um, however many we can get through tonight. I doubt that we'll get through all of them, but we'll, we'll see how far we get. Um, but let's talk about these. First of all, first of all, the first, the first way that standards are set, and this one really takes precedent over everything else. Now, it's important, church, that you hear what I'm saying. Words mean things. When I tell you this one takes precedent, that means that none of the others that come after can contradict this one. And so, as you might be guessing right now, the first way that standards are set is the Word of God sets standards. Everyone say the Word of God. The Word of God sets standards. There are some things that are very plainly stated in the Scripture. And nobody has got the right or the authority to bypass or change those standards that are set by the Scripture. You see, the Word of God really is the mind of God. It expresses to us God's will. Now, it, it, obviously it does more than that. It reveals the history of God's dealing with men. But, but basically, even in that, we come to know how God thinks concerning the issues of life. And so, with those areas, we should have little doubt as to the standards God sets. And, and listen to me. This knowledge of God's will through His Word is a great treasure to us as the people of God. Understanding the principles of God that are established in His Word help us to define many of the standards of the church. As I said, many scriptural standards are clearly indicated in the Bible. Others, others must be interpreted through a proper understanding of God's principles and through rightly dividing the Word of truth. The more we apply ourselves to diligent study of the Scripture, the more we understand and appreciate the standards that God sets for us. Let me read a few Scriptures to you or have these read to you. John 14, verse 15 says this. If you love me, keep my commandments. Again, we're talking about the love of God. If you don't want to do what God commands you to do, you don't love God. John 14, 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be the love of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now look, all of this hinges on that first part. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. That's clear to me. You've got God's commandments. You keep God's commandments. That's the way you prove you really love God. And if you do that, 
you'll be loved of my Father. And God will manifest himself to you if you love him enough to keep his commandments. John 14, verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and he will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Can it be any clearer than this church? Is it, is it possible for Jesus to have made anything more clear? He is repeatedly stating, if you really love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. If you won't do what my word says, you don't really love me. I don't care what you say. I don't care the words that you speak. If you won't do what God says to do, you don't really love God. That's what Jesus said. I'm not making this up. Or as Joe Biden would say, no joke. Got to show a little respect to the president. 1 John 3, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, well, look. Well, we like what John said about God's love in John 3, 16, don't we? Oh, man, the world loves what he said about God's love in John 3, 16. But wow, he said this is how you know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And it all hinges on whoever does righteousness. If you don't do righteousness, where does that put you? That means the devil is your daddy. That's what John said. I didn't make that up. John did. He didn't make it up. He said it. The Holy Ghost made it up <laughs> and spoke it through him. If you won't do righteousness and you won't love your brother, you are the child of the devil. That's what the Bible says. Well, you don't think this stuff is important? It's highly important. 1 John 3, verse in case you didn't notice, by the way, every verse I've read to you in this setting has been from John's writings. John 14, 15, John 14, 21, John 14, 23 to 24, 1 John 3 and 10, and now 1 John 3, 24. Everything is John's writing. 1 John 3, 24. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that and he abideth in us. this is how we know that he abides in us. By the spirit which he hath given us. He said he that keeps his commandments. That's how we know that the spirit is in us. If you don't keep the commandments of God, it's time for a spirit check. Come on now. This is scripture. So the Word of God sets certain standards, all right? For example, the Bible's very clear.
that witchcraft is an abomination unto God. That's, I mean, you, you, you can't get around that in Scripture. That standard is set. God hates it. He absolutely hates it. God hates homosexuality. It's an abomination unto God. The word abomination means detestable, deplorable, extremely um, uh, extremely hated. In fact, really the connotation behind the word abominable or abomination is that it is so intensely bad that it makes someone sick to even think about it. So when the Bible says that something is an abomination to God, it means it makes God sick just to think about it. Those standards we, we can't budge on. I don't care what the law says. We can't budge on those things. God's very clear. Witchcraft, homosexuality, these things are clearly extremely detestable to God. And that's saying a lot because God is love. And so if God is, not that God has love or shows love, he is love. And yet in the midst of one who is love, there are some things he hates so much it makes him sick. The Bible said a proud look. Sowing discord among brethren. Shedding innocent blood. These things are things that God hates intensely. And they are clearly stated in the scripture. There's, there's no room to give on that. We can't back down on that. We can't come along and say, well, it's 2023. And times are different now. And so we can accept homosexuality. No. No. This standard is set by the word of God. We can't budge, I don't care, if it's 21-23 or 30-23. I, I don't care the date on the calendar. These are things God said he hates, and he said, I'm the Lord, I change not. So time doesn't affect God's opinion of things. Now, another thing that I said when it comes to the word of God setting standards, this is why I said I didn't think, I didn't figure we'd get through may not get beyond this first one, but this first one is crucial. This is not in the notes, but go over to Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. And, and let me deal with something here. Because what I said was that, first of all, there are some standards that are clearly defined in Scripture. So the Word of God sets those standards. There are other things that we look at biblical principles because the wording is not there, but the biblical principles apply. All right? So let's, let's take an example. I've given you examples of things that the Bible's very clear about. 
But let's look at an example of something where we have to apply a principle here to really understand it. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5 says this. Yeah, it's the chapter after that. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Uh-huh. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Right. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, this is, this is very, very interesting. I have people all the time who say, well, you look at verse 5, and you, you're a stickler for verse 5, but... But, but there are other verses in this chapter that you don't obey. And such as verse 10. Read verse 10. I'll tell you what. Start with verse 9. Read verses 9 through 11. Th those three verses give us a good sampling of the kind of argument that I hear all the time. Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 through 11. Read. Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with divers don't seeds. Don't sow your vineyard with divers seeds. Lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown... And the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. Okay, so don't mix seeds in your in your planting. Don't mix seeds together. Th thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. Don't, don't put uh, don't put an ox and a donkey on the same uh, yoke. Thou shalt not wear a garment of divers sorts, as of woolen and linen together. Uh, don't don't wear clothes that are made out of wool and linen. And people say, you see, now all those rules, you don't live by one of those. But verse five. Boy, you're a stickler for that one. You're picking and choosing what verses are important. No. Let's look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 stands out. There's something different in verse 5 that you didn't read in any of these other verses. What does verse 5 say? The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Uh -huh. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Right. For all that For do so, all that do so, are abomination, are abomination unto the Lord unto thy God. the Lord thy God. Now he didn't say it's an abomination to wear wool and linen together. He didn't say it's an abomination to put an ox and a donkey together. He didn't say it's an abomination to mix the seeds in your vineyard together. He didn't say it was an abomination for any of that. He was speaking to the Jewish people about their religion and, and their lives in Canaan land. But when it comes to this, God said, I want to set this one apart. This is something that makes me sick to my stomach. God hates it. He absolutely despises it. So this one doesn't change. This one doesn't just apply to the Jews. It applies to everybody. Because God doesn't change. And if it made him sick in the Old Testament, it makes him sick today. Now, let's look at something else. It's very clear when it talks about a man. Leave, leave the verse back up there if you would. Uh, it's very clear when it talks about this Deuteronomy 22, 5. Uh, very clear when it talks about the man. What does it say about the man? Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. All right, very clear. Man should not wear a woman's clothes. That's, that's clear. That's straightforward. But did you notice, what did he say about the woman? 
The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. He didn't say a woman shall not wear a man's garment. Boy, God's so smart. He didn't say a woman shall not wear a man's garment. He did say a man shall not wear a woman's garment. But he said something different when it comes to women. Because God knew all the way down into the 20th and 21st century that all of a sudden people would decide there's such a thing as women's pants. And so those are not men's clothes. But God didn't say she can't wear a man's clothes. He said she's not to wear what even pertains to or is in any way connected to a man. Now, I'm sure that they're going to change this before long, but I can tell you I've been traveling around the world for a long time, and I don't care what language they speak. If I need to find the restroom, I don't have to be able to read the signs because worldwide, it's very clear which room is for the men and which is for the women based on one thing. Always, in every country, the women have on dresses and the men have on pants. I'm telling you, pants pertain to men. And even if that's not enough, we go back to the very first mention of pants in the Bible. First mention, remember that principle in Bible, uh, Bible study? The, the, the law of first mention. Do you know where pants are first mentioned in the Bible? They are first mentioned for the priesthood. That God said the priests were to wear pants under their robe. The very first time that pants are mentioned in the Bible, they're mentioned specifically for men because, like it or not, there was no such thing as women priests. Now, women preachers, we can get into that later on. Some other study, I'll let Brother Hall write a book on that or something. I, I, I'll hand that one off to somebody smarter than me. But I can tell you this, you don't have to be a deep biblical scholar to know there were no women priests. And so the very first mention of pants in the Bible, they were specifically created for men. That locks them in to that which pertains to a man. So I don't care how much you flower them up and and, and, and broaden the, the cuff and whatever you want to do, it doesn't change the fact it still pertains to a man. And what makes God sick is for a woman to wear anything that even pertains. Well, how deep do I go in this? I guess since I've only got three minutes and don't have time to move on to anything else, I might as well just. Now, now look, if God hates it, God absolutely detests it, why do we want to try to find some uh, exemption? 
Why would we want to find some way to do it anyhow? If it makes God sick at his stomach. So we won't wear them to church and we won't wear them to the store, but around the house or to bed. Now, now let me just, let me just, let me address that for just a minute, okay? Uh, because I, I do understand that in, your, in the privacy of your own home, um, you're not always going to be modest. But what I want you to understand is the wearing of that which pertains to men has nothing to do with modesty. This is a different situation altogether. This is something that makes God sick. Now, if it makes God sick while you're awake, it's going to make him sick while you're asleep. I, I, you know, I, I've just been amazed. I've seen even conservative men that allow women to wear pajama pants. We don't do that around here. Because it pertains to a man. Regardless, it pertains to a man. And it makes God sick to his stomach. Now listen, church, I said this, I think, two weeks ago in the lesson. I say it again. I've been saying for years and years that the whole idea behind this was to blur the lines of the sexes. And now we've reached that point where everything I've been warning about is coming to pass. It's exactly what I said was the end goal of the enemy. He didn't want there to be a difference between men and women because God created there to be a difference. Not that he made one better than the other or one superior to the other, but God wants there to be a difference. That's, that's part of the whole principle in, in the hair issue, and we'll get into that. I'm going to teach a whole lesson, believe it or not, just on hair. One entire lesson, probably more than one night, just on the subject of hair because there's so much in the Scripture about it. We'll get into that. But understand, church, that, that this is a subject. Now, what I'm trying to point out to you, and we'll, we'll get into this too. We'll get into this because we're going to get into clothing altogether. We'll do a lesson on that. But I wanted to show you that the Word of God set standards sometimes by specifically stating it. And sometimes by laying out a principle. But either way, the Word of God set that standard. And I don't have the authority to change it. I don't have the authority to bypass it. And neither does any other preacher or any other saint. God said it makes him sick. Therefore, I don't want to do anything. Now, I could do this like Elder Westberg. Elder Westberg, one time, now, he used to, when he taught on Sunday mornings, he would open the class at the end of the class uh, for questions. And one Sunday morning, they tell me, uh, I wasn't there, but I was told this. In fact, I think he's the one that told it on himself. I, I think I heard him tell it on himself, if I'm not mistaken. And he said one Sunday morning, he had, he had question and answer. And he said, some woman asked the question. She said, I want to know why you preach against women wearing pants. 
And if I'm not mistaken, she was sitting there with a pair of pants on. And he said, do you really want me to answer the question? Yes. All right. So he took her over to 22.5 and took her through the scriptures that showed uh, homosexuality and, 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 and um, witchcraft. Took her to the scriptures, shows that witchcraft is an abomination. And, and his, his end remark to her was, God hates a pants-wearing woman just like he hates a witch. Well, that answered the question. But it's the same category in God's eyes. And if a man puts on women's apparel or a woman wears anything that even seems like it's manly, God hates it the same as he hates witchcraft and homosexuality and all of these other things that we've talked about that the Bible specifically calls an abomination unto God. That's not just any sin. Now, God doesn't approve of any sin, but not every sin makes God sick. This one does. All right, I got to quit there. I'm over nine, after 9 o'clock. Where's, come, come, um, try to figure out what we're going to sing to wrap this up today. There is nothing, and, and again, because I'm going to talk about other things. I'm going to talk about five other ways that standards are set. But I want, I want you to understand that in none of these do they take precedent over this one. That there, there is no setting of a standard that can in any way contradict or excuse what the Scripture plainly states or some scriptural principle plainly states. Those things are set in stone. Those things are forever settled. And those things will remain. We're not going to change those. We can't change those. We need to embrace them and understand if it makes God sick, it ought to make us sick. And if it doesn't make us sick, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to pray for God to let it make you sick God let me hate it as intensely as you hate it let me love what you love and hate what you hate that's how we're going to become more like him how can we claim to be like Jesus if we don't hate what Jesus hates and love what Jesus loves well praise God Hallelujah. Let's stand tonight. Let's lift our hands. Oh, God, grant us, God, a love for the things that you love and a hatred for the things that you hate. God, don't let us excuse in our lives those things that you're not going to excuse. But help us, God, to embrace the standards that you've set. To love them. To live by them. To do the things that you've commanded us to do. That we might be found pleasing in your sight. Come on, let's talk to him.
Let's talk to him, everybody. Right where you're at, just talk to the Lord.